Hello and welcome to Please Expand. Uh, today, I have a very special guest with me on the podcast, uh, my good friend Diogo Carneiro, who will be doing the interview with me. Hi, Diogo. Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me here. This, yeah, it's an absolute it's pleasure. Great. Uh, Diogo, why don't you introduce yourself a bit to uh, my listeners? Tell them about yourself. Yeah, so broadly speaking, I uh, work in moral and political philosophy, um, and I have speci specifically been focusing on how we as citizens uh, should uh, reason together about issues of social justice, um, and then also uh, what role uh, empathy can play in this process and how we should understand objectivity in the context of uh, social justice. It's very succinct. <laughs> Good. For, for once. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. And uh, we've been reading uh, Adrian Waldridge's The Aristocracy of Talent for the last few weeks now. And we are about to interview Adrian on this interesting book. So before we get to that, I just thought I'd give a brief introduction uh, to Adrian and the book, and um, you know, it's just a brief summary of what uh, our listeners should expect before we get into the interview itself. So Adrian is an author and columnist, and he is currently the global business columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. And previously he worked in uh, at The Economist. And the book that we're discussing today is his most recent book, uh, The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. And very basically, it's just a, it's a book that tries to argue in favor of meritocracy, an idea that has recently come under quite a lot of criticism from people like uh, Michael Sandel and uh, Markovitz. What's his first name? Daniel. Daniel Markovitz. I believe. Yeah. And uh, Adrian approaches this subject from a historical lens. He takes us through ancient Greece, ancient China, up until the modern world. And he shows how, basically how meritocracy arose and why it arose. And in the conclusion, he discusses a bit about how it might be saved. And so this is what we're going to discuss in this interview. We're going to talk about what he thinks merit is, what he thinks a meritocracy is, and basically just try to figure out what he thinks about it and analyze whether or not his suggestions for reforming it are successful. And just to give you a brief idea of how the interview will be structured, because I failed to mention this in the interview, uh, we're going to begin with a brief introduction, and then we're going to broadly divide the interview in three sections. One, we, one where it's meritocracy and equality. The other one is meritocracy and education. And the other one, the final one, is meritocracy and capitalism. And then there'll be a conclusion where we discuss um, some final thoughts on the on the uh, on the issue of meritocracy in the modern world. So I think that's that's enough for now. Let's get on to our interview with Adrian then. Hello, welcome to Please Expand. Today I have Adrian Aldridge, author of The Aristocracy of Talent here to discuss his book with me and Diogo, my co-host for the day. Adrian, thank you very thank much you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me. So Adrian, why don't we start off with a brief summary of your book? What is it that your book aims to do? Well, my book basically aims to rescue 
a very fundamental concept from what I regard as either neglect or disparagement. I think most of us assume that meritocracy is a sort of natural thing almost, that people are naturally rewarded for their talents and that society naturally organises itself to um, give opportunities to people who are able. Uh, And I don't think that's the case. What I try and show in the book is that for most of human history, um, the guiding assumptions of society have been the very opposite of meritocratic ones, that society has been considered to be hierarchical, that people who try and advance themselves on their own abilities have been considered to be disruptive counter-jumpers, that a small group of families has primarily controlled the world, and that the the meritocratic idea was an exceptionally revolutionary and quite recent idea in most of the world that has completely changed the world and reordered the world. So it's it's a history of a revolutionary idea, of a recent idea, and an idea that, in my opinion, has very strangely come in for undue and wrong-headed criticism recently. Right. So how would you define a meritocracy? What is a meritocracy for you? Uh, A meritocracy is a society which tries to um, give people opportunities on the basis of their abilities rather than putting them in positions on the basis of tradition. The person who invented the term uh, meritocracy or the, was a man called Michael Young, and he said that merit is IQ plus effort. And I would say that merit is probably IQ plus effort plus uh, a universal education system which tries to give every, make sure it gives everybody an opportunity to get ahead, minus discrimination and bias. Right. Okay, so that's, that's a really helpful way to begin. And I think if you ask the average person on the street if they would uh, be for a meritocracy, the way you described it, they'd probably just say yes, right? I mean, it just sounds like something that we want. Maybe something that would be good to clarify would be what are the, what are the alternatives that you mentioned some critics of meritocracy so what kind of political, alter- social political alternatives are there to meritocracy? To give an idea of how one might contrast this way of organising society to another way of organising society. Absolutely. I mean, I think most of us would um, say, yes, of course, that's the way things ought to, ought to be organised. And that's probably basically uh, the way that, um, you know, in lots of ways, that's, that's, that's how things are organised. And every sort of politician you see around the world uh, says that they believe in equality of opportunity and meritocracy and letting the the able get ahead and all of that sort of thing and removing unjust restrictions on on, on people getting ahead. But as I uh, as I said, to start off with, this is a relatively recent way of organising the world. Uh, and throughout most of history, the world has been organised um, according to ascription, which means that your place in the world is inherited. You do what your father did. Um, and you occupy a position that your father that, that your, your father owned, and so this is a sort of aristocratic way of organising society based on land ownership, and a sort of very traditional way of organising society based on traditions, how things have always been done. That's what's been the case throughout most of human history. I think um, the landed aristocracy has tended to rule; that people have tended to follow their fathers in jobs. And they've tended to inherit their positions. Now, there are also some interesting and strange quirks on this, that if you have a a traditional society, you have also a system of patronage. So people who who are in powerful positions will tend to give jobs, positions, openings 
to people who are connected with them in some way, primarily their children, but also their nephews and nieces, um, and also their wider group of associates. And in this sort of world, the aristocratic world, jobs tended to be regarded as gifts that could be given by powerful people rather than things that required you to do any work. So some people who had jobs did some work, but that was a bonus. That was incidental. Many, many people who had jobs didn't bother to do, didn't bother to do anything. I, in researching this book, I found uh, an example of one lady who was paid £200 a year in the 1780s in Britain to actors. And that £200 a year in those days was a great deal of money. Uh, and she was there to act as the wet nurse of the Prince of Wales. But the Prince of Wales at that time was, was, was in his 20s. You know, so a job and doing things um, to earn that money were, were, were incidental things. So you have patronage as a very important mechanism for distributing um, employment. But you also have uh, purchase. So people would buy and sell jobs on the open market in the same way that they would buy and sell furniture. And so the idea of a job market was quite a literal thing. There was a market in jobs that you could buy and sell. So people who had commissions in the army would buy those commissions. Um, people who were tax collectors would buy the right of tax collecting. Uh, people who were civil servants would buy the right to be civil servants. And that was um, an extremely important way for the state to fund itself. You know, it got its money partly from taxes, but partly from selling selling the right to tax and all sorts of other jobs. So the army, for example, didn't really cost the state any money because people were buying these jobs in the army, then selling them on to other people. Uh, when they retired, instead of getting a state pension, they would just sell the job to the next person uh, along the line. Now, you, might, you, you may well ask, you know, it's obvious that somebody might buy a job as a tax collector because they could keep some of the, the tax money. But why would people buy the job as a soldier if they were going to go into battle, fight for their country and get killed uh, or potentially get killed? But fighting in wars was, you know, opened a way to an enormous amount of plunder. And um, you could get very rich. You know, the Duke of Marlborough, Churchill's ancestor, built Blenheim Palace uh, on the basis of plunder from from wars. So, so the, 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 you know, the ability to get into the army so you could go and fight foreign wars and plunder other countries or, or get into the navy was, a, was a, a, a very important thing. So the world in which jobs are given to people on the basis of their ability to perform their jobs, on the basis, let's say, of, ex of examinations or formal qualifications, is a very, very recent world. And throughout most of human history, social positions have been inherited, a small group of landed families have dominated, jobs have been given by patronage or by purchase or by nepotism. And that's been regarded as the, the normal, proper way of doing things. So the idea that somebody could write, be born in the bottom of society and rise up to the top was regarded as a very worrying thing, as unnatural, as disruptive of, uh, of, the, of, of the social order. Right. So well, I think we, we want to slowly get into a more conceptual discussion of merit and meritocracy. So when we talk about uh, merit uh, or what is merited, it seems that this seems to be related to what is warranted, sometimes justified, sometimes deserved. So if the idea of merit is connected with, like you said in the uh, before, IQ or talent, 
plus education minus minus I'm missing one bias yes yes thank you so if the idea of merit is to be connected with talent plus these things then what is the connection between these ideas exactly? Well, the, the first notion of, of, of merit, as you say, merit is about dessert as a primary meaning of what it is. And one notion is that because you have a certain set of abilities, because you're born intelligent, let's say, or musical or athletic, then you have a claim on um, an education which will allow those abilities to flourish. So clever people should be given educational stimulation. Athletic people should be given athletic opportunities. Musical people should be given mu- you know, opportunities to, to, to play and learn music. That's one sort of dessert. It's that my talent demands uh, that I'm given these sorts of opportunities because that's the only way it can flourish. But also that not, you know, giving, not allocating resources in that way, giving, you know, demanding mathematics lessons to people who aren't very good at maths or musical lessons to people who have no musical talent is a foolish way of using uh, society's resources. There's also the same claim um, in terms of dessert, that if you have two people who apply for a job, one of whom would be very good at that job uh, and the other would be very bad at it, the, the person who would be very good deserves that job, not just because they, they, they you know, it would be good from a utilitarian point of view for, for, for society to give them that job, but also because in some fundamental way it would be unjust to give the job to the person who uh, wouldn't do it very well. And you'd probably be suspicious that they were getting the job for all sorts of corrupt or nepotistic reasons. So it's a sort of strange notion of desert in a sense, but it's a very compelling one and one that fits in with our, our sense of natural justice, that round pegs should go into round holes. Mm. But at the same time, it seems that there is an element of something that is not morally moral in that definition of and you are attributing some moral element to merit overall while while it's based on something that is not necessarily moral which is talent right which is some people have argued morally arbitrary yes now let me summarize the arguments against it and say, uh, uh, and say why i'm wrong uh, why, why i'm wrong i'm not going to say why i'm wrong i'm, I'm going to say why the critics are wrong the argument is that we don't deserve are talents and that so giving people rewards for their talents is like giving people rewards for being beautiful or tall um, and it sort of compounds inequalities so if you give somebody who happens to be very clever um, a really really good education and then a really good career based on their qualifications you're actually taking somebody who hasn't done anything uh, to deserve those talents and giving them piling on rewards and that is a sort of leads to a very unjust society, uh, partly because these people pull ahead, but partly because another set of people who aren't particularly talented are left at the bottom of society and they're born not very talented, then they're, in a sense, punished for, for not being talented by being left with poor educations and poor pay. Now, there are a number of reasons why I think that that, 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 that is wrong. Firstly, I think it's not entirely the case that we don't deserve our talents. We get our talents from God or genetics or wherever they come from. But there are very, very, very few people who are so talented that they don't have to do a certain amount of work to turn raw um, abilities into, into sort of marketable talents. So whatever the proportion is, whether it's 90% inheritance, 10% uh, 
achievements, whatever it is, there's certainly a lot of work that's going to be mixed with talent. So all the time you need to, to, to have some sense. And that's something that deserves uh, rewards, but also something that will probably only be discovered if it gets rewards, that people won't work hard unless they're rewarded. So there's a sort of a dessert, pure dessert, that I worked hard, therefore I, I, I need something, even though I was born clever. But there's also the system of incentives. I also think that you can promote natural justice, I mean, a more general sense of sense of justice as, uh, as um, equal opportunities, by the fact that some people who are talented, when they are well-educated, when they go on to get good jobs, are then taxed to a significant degree. You know, higher earners get higher taxes and those taxes can be fed back into the uh, to the rest of society to provide a welfare state and to provide opportunities for, uh, and, and, and support for people who aren't quite so talented and i think finally this you know this notion of why should we re- reward people who haven't done something to to reward them is my round pegs in, in, in round holes point there's a sense in which we think it's it's right and proper that people who can do things should be asked to do them and people who can't do them should 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 not be asked to do them that you know that clever people should be doing things that are, that demand intellectual facility and that if you don't do that if you if you you know put people who can't do jobs into jobs or you take people who are clever and give them jobs that aren't very demanding then you're somehow um not acting in a just way and certainly you're not acting in a wise way because you 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 reduce the um, economic efficiency of society, you create a lot of frustration and you also create lots of individual examples of injustice. Yeah. All right. Just a follow up on some of the things you've said. So it seems like perhaps I misunderstood, but it seems that you are trying to say that effort makes a kind of a sort of moral claim uh, over things, while you also agree that to a certain extent, at least, talent is mostly, or to a certain extent, the result of luck, right? And then what turns this into a moral argument fully is the is is one's effort to turn an ability into something like achievement. Is that the idea? Absolutely. I, right. I would so, say that there are lots of different sorts of moral claims going on here, but one of those moral claims is that because um, you know the, the, people like Michael Sandel would argue well or, or you know you don't deserve to be rewarded for being lucky um, you're born clever that's purely a matter of luck and therefore you don't have any moral claim on rewards that stem from that now I don't think there are many people who are so clever or so musical or so athletic athletic that they don't have to do a lot of work as well and to the extent that they're doing work, that is deserved purely on the on 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 the sense that putting a lot of work into something turning a potential into an achievement mm-hmm. is something that is 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 morally good that's one sort of argument that people have worked hard you know they've denied themselves certain things you know i naturally would lie in bed all day eating ice cream or whatever i don't do that and therefore i deserve i'm morally i'm doing a morally good thing by getting up and and working and doing doing all of those things Um, and if you look at the you know the great achievers you know you look at even mozart who is one of the great natural geniuses of all time has to work very hard michelangelo works very hard that's you know usain bolt 
you know, the great athletes train to an extraordinary degree and put in a lot of effort. So this notion that it's all luck, which is the Sandel argument, strikes me as, as, as false. There's, 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 there's always effort mixed with the luck that is being born, born extremely talented. Right. But what I was wanted to get to is, uh, I understand, I think I understand your point, but it's unclear what moral argument or how the talent part of the argument is helping the moral case, because it seems that you, you might be creating a moral distinction. Um, so be, between those that have merit and those that have don't, don't have merit, according to the, your definition, that is based on something that is morally arbitrary, right? So that the argument for deservingness based on talents needs needs to be fleshed out. Well, and I'm not entirely clear what it is. Well, there are lots of different arguments. As I, I, as I said, there's one argument that we deserve things because we work hard for them. They're not just given to us by God or genetics. They're things that we work hard for. I also say there's a, there's a purely ut utilitarian argument that the good of society is maximized by making a proper use of all of its uh, resources. So in terms of incentives, in terms of deserts, in terms of utility, and I think in terms of the general moral health of society, Uh, that, that's another argument, because I think if you have lots of clever people who are doing undemanding jobs, lots of not clever people who are doing very demanding jobs, that creates uh, uh, moral frustration. It, create, it, it creates extraordinary frustration throughout society. So I don't think there's one simple type of moral argument. There are a series of different types of moral arguments that reinforce each other. There's also a sense of natural justice here, that if you ask a man in the street or a woman in the street, whether people should have equal opportunities, that they, whether they should be judged fairly on the basis of their individual talents, whether they should be promoted on the basis of their talents, or whether we should have affirmative action based on race or various other prescription things. Overwhelmingly, people will say they will plump for equality of opportunity and meritocracy. So I think the fact that there is this there's this widespread sense of what constitutes natural justice in the mind of, 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 of regular people is also a strong strong modern moral case. It's an intuition about what is, what is a, a good and proper way of organizing the world. Just as if a job is given to the nephew of the boss of a company um, who hasn't done any work for something is something uh, which uh, automatically creates moral hostility. It's a sense of natural justice. But in that last case, you could have done something while not be particularly talented and still. So the effort element would be there in the conception of merit, whereas yeah, no, no, talent no, no, would my, my be... Merit is, it, 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 my, the emphasis on, on effort is, I think, it's, 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 it's partly an incentive issue, but it's partly you know, against the idea that, this is, that, that talent is, more, is a matter purely of luck. It's to some extent a matter of luck, you know, genetics, God, whatever you want, want to call, but it's not purely a matter of luck. So the Sandel argument, which rests enormous amount on the fact that these, these talents are, more, are, are morally arbitrary, not earned through effort, is, I, I find, questionable. Okay. Okay, so I think that's a, a good introduction into merit, meritocracy, sort of the, sort of the general thing that we want to discuss. We sort of divided this interview into three sections equality, education, and then capitalism, meritocracy and its relationship to capitalism. Yeah. So why don't we start with equality? The subtitle of the book is How Meritocracy Made the, the Modern World. 
And you cite many examples, you know, about the French Revolution, revolution in women's rights and other rights of minorities. And you suggest that all these things are part of the meritocratic revolution. When we think about the French Revolution, when we think about women's rights, we might think that these are rather shifts in our notions of equality rather than notions of merit, that what people are gaining are, is political equality, moral equality, rather than necessarily the ability to progress in society based on your hard work. What do you think about that? I mean, how do you see this relationship between equality and merit in historical developments mm-hmm. and how they work mm-hmm. together conceptually? Mm-hmm. Well, let me start off by saying what sort of book this is, because this, this, this book is not um, uh, an attempt to write John Rawls as a theory of justice or something like that. It's not an exercise in philosophy, um, and it's not an exercise in practical, in abstract reasoning. It's, um, although there's a, it's a little bit of that in it, it's an exercise in the writing of history. So it's a, an attempt to understand how the modern world came to be what it is. The central argument in the book is that we have neglected as historians to, to give a good account or a comprehensive account of the role that this particular idea of merit, meritocracy played in the in the making of the modern world uh, and it's also uh, because it's a work of history it takes a series of ideas um, such as merit such as virtue such as um, equality and treats them in a very historical way so our notion of merit uh, shifts in various in, in, in very fundamental ways uh, over the years so when we're talking about merit in the in, in, in the 18th century we've talking to some extent about something that's different from the 19th century, which is different from the 20th and 21st century. So it's a history of the way that we think about uh, individual abilities down the centuries, and that way changes. So if you look at the 18th century, people habitually talk about virtues and abilities, um, or virtues and talents, I should say, not abilities, virtues and talents. So these two words tend to be coupled together and they're referring both to moral things and to you know your 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 your, your talents, your your capacity to do, do various things. If you look at the mid twentieth century, if you uh, you look at um, uh, um, Michael Young Young's book, uh, there's much more of a sense that um, merit equals ability equals IQ. Divorced, in a sense, from from morality, it's really um, uh, your ability to get ahead in an educational system through this raw intellectual brain power. And again, today we're getting a slight redefinition of what of what constitutes merit. So it's a very fluid thing, but these are fluid ideas with quite big consequences. On the idea of equality um, and whether these people are claiming to be treated equally, I don't think they are necessarily tr- claiming to be treated equally. They're claiming that. An equality of moral worth, I think, which is something which is very deep and quite old within the Christian tradition. I mean, it, Jesus talks about it a great deal. But when the French revolutionaries or the American revolutionaries or indeed the um, the early feminists, um, suffragettes, are talking uh, about these things, they're talking to a considerable degree about the removal of barriers to the full expression of their talents or abilities. Uh, they're saying that you, 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 we mustn't be forced to occupy um, positions just because we're born into the lower classes or just because we're 
we're of a certain gender. Those restrictions are illegitimate. They should be removed. We should be allowed to progress as far as our natural talents will take us. Um, and that's a just way of organizing society. It's also an efficient way of organizing society. So the French, uh, the American revolutionaries are very um, articulate about this. Uh, and they talk a great deal, not, not really about, they certainly don't think about equality of results. They think about equality of opportunity. But they also talk a great deal about a natural aristocracy. They want to get rid of the old landed aristocracy, which they consider to be false, tinsel aristocracy, they call it, and, re and replace it with equal opportunity to get ahead, which will buy a process of natural selection. They don't use the phrase natural selection, but that's roughly what they mean, um, will produce a, a, a natural aristocracy based on people's innate virtues and talents. The French revolutionaries are saying exactly the same thing, really, and obviously Jefferson uh, is, is very, very influenced in particular by by, by, by the French, but they're saying that we must create this, this aristocracy of nature, get rid of these decadent people who are lazy, entitled, buying and selling office, and replace it by uh, a natural aristocracy, because that's, that's both right, just, and efficient. Now, when you're talking about the suffragettes, as, as, as you mentioned, it's slightly more, more, more complicated than that, although there's some interesting nuances there, because they're, first of all, saying... We're women, and as women, we do, all of us deserve the right to vote uh, because that's part of what it is to be human. That's part of our personhood. So that's not claiming, uh, you know, an, an ability to get ahead of other people. It's claiming a recognition of equality, an equal rec recognition. But there are also, I mean, that, that moment in the history of feminism, uh, the suffragette movement, goes along with a lot of other demands, which is... Uh, equal educational opportunity, setting up Oxford and Cambridge colleges for, 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 for women, opening the civil service to women, all of which are justified in very meritocratic terms. You know, you get ahead uh, on the basis of the, your individual abilities. And this, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, you get a whole bunch of reforms which open competition up to um, men. And these women are saying, well, if these men can be judged on the basis of open competition, so can we should be as well. There's no logical reason why you can't. It's entirely prejudiced on the basis uh, of sex. But you're quite right, as, 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 as although I think there are nuances uh, about the suffragette argument. I say there are nuances uh, because um, there are large numbers of people within the, 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 the suffragette movement, certainly the early suffragette movement, who are not that interested in universal voting for women. They're, they're, they're more interested in middle-class women uh, being enfranchised. And some of them say, isn't it appalling that all these working class, uneducated men can vote and educated women can't vote. So there is a there is a sense of, uh, of sort of meritocratic prejudices coming in there. But that's that's a nuance. Yeah. Just, um, yeah, on the historical examples, I thought there are also some cases of people who are actually afraid of meritocrats. So I think uh, you talk about John Adams, who talks about them. Mm -hmm. They ought to be in cages and they should only be released on society when we when we need them. But until then... And so, and so John Adams is an, exa an early example of someone who's maybe, you know, quite wisely understood some possible implications of meritocracy. We've been talking about how moral equality seems to be essential for meritocracy. People nowadays, some people might argue that meritocracy is undermining moral equality. 
And John Adams yeah. seems to have been possibly Absolutely. vindicated in, in this regard in his fear. Yeah. Maybe not putting him in cages, but uh, in, yeah. in the general fear. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, I mean, central to my argument in my book is the idea that meritocracy is a radical idea that comes in many ways from the bottom of society or the periphery of society and disturbs the established order. So it's, you know, the, the left-wing argument about meritocracy is it's a sort of conspiracy of people at the top to justify social inequality in the name of, of natural inequality of various sorts. I say, no, it's not that. It's something that comes from, from outside. So it tends to be taken up by the ambitious middle classes, the ambitious working classes and ambitious women who all want to get ahead in society. And so most of the the most searing critiques of meritocracy come from conservative traditionalists who say, uh, who defend the landed order, who say that, you know, jobs should be inherited, positions should be inherited, that the landed elite has got a, a claim to power based on tradition um, and that these jumped up people are terrible people and we, sh- we shouldn't listen to them, we should keep them under order. Now, it's quite interesting that a number of those sort of critiques that are made are now being echoed by people who certainly don't believe that people should be born in huge houses to rule and, and have landed estates. But the, what, the, what the, the aristocrats tend to say is if you get a meritocratic society, it will be a society that's fragmented, that gives enormous um, scope to individuals who are greedy and self-seeking to get ahead. It'll be a very unsettled and unpleasant sort of society. And that's all the way through the sort of aristocratic critique of, 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 of meritocracy. Now, John Adams, who you mentioned, is a very interesting thinker because um, he's a very subtle and complicated thinker. And he's always arguing with himself. And uh, one of the arguments that he has with himself is about meritocracy because he's a natural meritocrat. He comes from sort of a sort of relatively lowly place in society. He goes to Harvard on the basis of, of his abilities He's in a class in which he's quite low down socially, but he's obviously very high up in terms of his abilities. So he naturally uh, gravitates towards this argument that's presented by Jefferson and Madison and various other people about natural aristocrats. But then, and partly because he likes to argue with Jefferson anyway, because they have an enormous tension, personal tension, then he starts interrogating this notion of natural aristocrats and saying, well, how could it go wrong? And one of the ways in which he thinks it can go wrong is precisely this, this, this critique of why should we give more privilege to the people who are already naturally privileged by their own intellectual abilities? And won't they grab everything? Won't they keep everything for themselves and transmit it to their children? And he experiments with various ways in which this, this natural aristocracy can be turned to the public good. Uh, and in, I think one passage of the passage you're referring to, he says, well, let's have a Senate but let's treat it as a sort of gilded cage in which we can put all these people in order to sort of imprison them, um, arguing with themselves. So Adams is a fascinating thinker, uh, but he's the very opposite of a coherent thinker because he's arguing with himself all the time, and he's always seeing both both sides of the argument. But I think he was one of the most interesting early uh, critics of of meritocracy and produces all sorts of reasons why it's a bad thing, as well as all sorts of reasons why it's a good thing. And he hates Jefferson, so... Love hates Jefferson, so it's all it's all very complicated. So, uh, one of the things that seems to play a, a bigger role in defining one's life is education, and if education is organized in terms of a pure meritocratic, a pure meritocratic ideas, 
one's life seems to be become overwhelmingly uh, determined by education, right? So we want to discuss a little bit, talk about education and merit and the relation between the two. So in your book, you show that developments in Europe after the French Revolution uh, went in the direction of state exams and tracking intelligence as a means of for promoting merit. But you seem to also be making the case that exams are an integral part of a meritocratic um uh, of meritocracy through education, right? So the question is why and how exactly is it that exams are good at attracting merit? Well, one of the first things that we have to understand is that exams themselves are fairly fluid things. So the first set of exams, not the first set of exams, but some of the earliest exams that are used to look for merit, uh, ability, talent, are tests essentially of how much you know. They're tests of knowledge. Uh, and then people begin to worry, well, this obviously benefits the super well-educated, people who've been sent to school early and taught a, a lot of stuff early on in their lives over everybody else. Uh, so in the middle of the 19th century, you get this idea that jobs in the civil service should be open to examinations, that jobs in the Oxford colleges or Cambridge colleges should be open to examinations. Because before that, a lot of people have been given fellowships on the basis, again, of family connections rather than of intellectual ability. So mm -hmm. you get this idea that all of these jobs should be looking for intellectual ability. But then the way you look for intellectual ability is to test people's knowledge of subjects, their ability to write essays with, about pieces of knowledge, their ability to translate classical texts and things like that. Then there are two sort of critiques of this way of assessing merit, merit both of which are reasonable and both of which have enormous consequences. Uh, one is that not everybody goes to school. Certainly not everybody goes to secondary school and certainly not everybody goes to Eton. So this is a very unfair thing. You know, how can the, the, ch the child of the swimming sweep chimney sweep have a chance to compete for an Oxford fellowship or a civil service exam which are claiming to be meritocratic processes when they haven't been to school so you get the creation of a mass examination system and this, and this logic that for everybody to be given equality of opportunity you have to have more and more education pushes this whole rev revolution in education whereby first of all secondary school education becomes universal which it basically does by the end of the Second World War, then university education becomes available to more and more people. It's about 50% of the population at the moment. Uh, in England, um, in America, 40, 45%. It's, it's shrinking a bit in America. Um, so you do that. So you expand educational opportunity in order to honour this meritocratic promise. But also there's this idea that, well, subject exams are necessarily biased to people who've been very well taught. So we have to look for other ways to find raw ability um, that is in some way distinct from people's um, polish. And absolutely central to the meritocratic idea is that there is a real and important distinction between your promise, your raw ability, what you have within yourself, and your performance. So you're always in a meritocratic system looking for people's promise, their innate ability, their hidden abilities, rather than just um, their performance on the examination in that day or on the school test in that day, because there's always some recognition 
that some people have been very, very, very well polished or like geese, you know, stuffed, stuffed, you know, for, 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 for the pate and, and the rest of it. Um, and so what you begin to do is instead of just having more education, you have IQ tests or standardized tests, puzzles, um, questions which are designed to look at people's verbal reasoning ability or their mathematical ability. And indeed, we were talking earlier about um, criticisms, you know, early criticisms of meritocracy. And there was a man in the late 19th century who's called General Birdwood in Britain who talks about, you know, there will become a world which will be so bad that everybody will be selected for jobs on the basis of their ability to do crossword puzzles. And there's a sense in that's what the SATs are and that's what these IQ tests are. They're an attempt to, you know, you're not looking for what people know, but their raw intellectual ability, which drives all of that. So there are these two, two revolutions in, in education that go on, driven by this meritocratic idea, equality of opportunity idea. And when we're talking about the raw ability, we're talking about IQ, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, sort of, so you, you, you talk a lot about the birth of IQ testing and how that gets yeah. refined and uh, uh, polished. One something that was interesting was that in your section on um, I, IQ testing, the individuals that we're talking about all seem to be preoccupied with finding the hidden geniuses in society. Yeah, and that's that's obviously very important. But obviously, the majority of society isn't full, it's not full of geniuses. It's regular people who have different abilities, and. Mm. First of all, it's interesting that these people who are interested in IQ are primarily concerned with finding geniuses rather than sort of trying mm -hmm. to stratify society according to IQs, regardless of whether you're a genius or not. And secondly, it just makes you wonder, is IQ sufficiently, is, is it a sufficiently good way of distinguishing people's abilities? So you've got like the geniuses and you've got the rest of us. Amongst the rest of us, is it, is it sufficiently good to pass us into what we can and cannot do? Well, you're asking a gigantic question yeah, there, which has consumed a great deal of thought over the last century and a half. Yeah. Let me start off with the genius point. Mm. Um, there is an enormous um, emphasis on the question of genius amongst the earlier IQ people. So one of the people who, who's an originator of this style of thinking is Francis Galton, and he writes a book called Hereditary Genius, um, a lot of the people who are um, in the academic world who are developing sort of various sort of tests to look for um, students are also obsessed with genius. So if you look at the origins of IQ tests, one origin is in these Cambridge Tripos examinations, um, which are all designed to find the top wranglers, you know, the very best mathematicians or the very best classical scholars uh, that you can possibly have. And they're absolutely obsessed by ranking people and people at the very top of the distribution curve. Yeah. Uh, that's because they're looking for, you know, for, for top wranglers for fellowships of Trinity College, Cambridge, and top civil servants uh, and, and things like that. And, they look, and there's, a, you know, there's an element of, well, not just an element, there's an enormous amount of intellectual snobbery here. Um, but also IQ tests are very rapidly used at the very bottom of the ability scale to look for people who are mentally deficient in various ways. So the Binet-Simon tests, which are the earliest sort of 
regular IQ tests are actually used for mentally challenged children. They're developed in France for people who um, have severe learning difficulties. And so you have two sets of preoccupations here, um, which, uh, which are people at the very top and people at the very bottom. Mm. And you have uh, two sets of problems. One set of problem is how do we award prize fellowships of Trinity College Cambridge, let's say, to mathematical geniuses. But another set of problems is how do we find out which children can go to school and profit from school, regular school, and which children need to be put in backward streams or in, you know, in that, those days they put them into institutions and things like that. So it's coming from both ends. And these two ends are joined by the notion of um, the normal distribution curve that there is a normal distribution in intelligence um, and that unlike, uh, rather than human beings being basically the same with just a few few geniuses and a few mentally challenged people at the other end, there's a huge gradation. There may be more people with IQs of 100, but the interesting thing is how, how wide the distribution of abilities within the population is. And this notion of a normal distribution curve, a bell curve, whatever you want to call it, is absolutely central to um to, to to the development of iq uh, of iq testing and other sorts of thinking and the central idea in this is that we live in a world of individual differences that individuals are enormously different in their fundamental sort of mental attributes now there are there's a lot of criticisms of these uh these ideas and a lot of complexities but fundamental to the to one school of iq thinking let's say, is that there's this notion of G, general intelligence, that each of us has a certain amount of general intelligence, uh, which can be measured and which can allocate us on this linear scale. Now, a lot of other people within the same tradition will say, well, actually, there are lots and lots of different sorts of abilities. Somebody who's really good at music might well not be very good at writing or might well not be very good at uh, mathematics and various other things. There are, there are multi, multi-dimensions mm -hmm to uh the, this um to, to to the distribution of abilities so they would say is their criticism of the normal distribution curve is a normal distribution curve of what ability so you could be on very different positions within within different within different curves other people would say that we're, we're much more equal than that but even within the iq testing world there are people who believe in g a general ability and then also other people who believe in lots of different types of talent which aren't necessarily highly correlated Okay. All right. So um, we, we talked about IQ, uh, IQ testing. We talked about exams. Um, so let's assume, for, just for the sake of argument, that these are tracking something like we call can call merit, talent, those things. Um, I think it might not follow, at least necessarily, that being academically su successful means that one will be competent at whatever job the one will do. So... I don't know. We might agree that an engineer that has finished first in their degree um, in their class will make good airplanes or rockets. Um, but it's unclear that um, being a top student is sufficient to being, for example, a good doctor. Um, I think that no one doubts that we, that we know that the best what these people will know what the best remedy for some disease is, but if they don't have, uh, let's say, 
the human skills to deal with uh, patients, they might miss relevant information uh, and not be good doctors by also failing to not have what is called like uh, good bedside manners, right? Um, and if we continue this process from engineer to doctors and then we move, for example, to politicians, I think the question <laughs> even <laughs> more worries arise. And I think the more we go from a technical job to jobs that have to do with value, the worries will just uh, increase. So the question is, why would academic success make one a good leader of a country? Because it seems that you're suggesting that in the book at, th at different passages. I wouldn't necessarily think that that's a fair description of, 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 of what I would say. I would say mm -hmm. that um, there's a certain... Um, perhaps a certain confusion in my mind uh, about this. I think that um, that I have two sorts of sets of arguments uh, in, in the book. One is that um, in order to, to succeed in a very complicated, intellectually demanding society, um, your IQ, your raw abilities, becomes more and more important sort of qualification uh so um in you know if you're going to run a manor house you know probably your ability to understand farming or just to 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 to, to, to understand horses and things like that is the key thing if you're going to run a modern civil service then i think raw intellectual ability your ability to learn things and understand very complicated things matters enormously but i also argue in the book that it's very um, dangerous if you have a sort of society in which the cognitive elite becomes divorced from the rest of society um, and becomes to consider itself to be separate from the rest of society and in some ways superior to the rest of society. So one of the worries that I talk about is that, in fact, that's exactly what's happening, not just in the civil service, but also in parliamentary systems. So the people who, who, who run global institutions like the World Bank and the IMF are basically selected for intelligence. The people who run the European Union are increasingly selected for education and intelligence. So there's an enormous number of people in the top ranks of the European Union who will have not just um, very good university degrees, but PhDs and higher degrees. It's also exactly the same thing is happening within parliamentary systems. So it used to be the case that a lot of people in parliament in, let's take the British Parliament as an example, would have come from working class backgrounds and would have left school quite early in their lives. Now, almost all of them have got university degrees, um, much, much higher proportion of university degrees than people in the population at large. So that's not very healthy for a democracy because they're divorced from the, the, the regular people. So I think in order to have a successful political system now, you have to have a a very subtle mixture between meritocracy on the one hand and democracy on the other hand. Uh, by meritocracy, I mean the people who are going to run, let's say, um, a scientific department should be educated and intelligent enough to understand, you know, the demands of science. But that also people, you know, people who are, rep are in parliaments and who have parliamentary seats should also not, not you know, be a fair and reasonable sample of the population in general. Uh, and one of the things that we we got over the last few years um, before the Brexit vote and before the Trump breakdown was a political system that was actually skewed much 
too much towards the educated. And that skewing towards the educated led to a large number of people feeling disempowered and also in many ways being disempowered, not being properly represented, their views being disparaged and not represented. So this balance between the two things um, is a very, very delicate balance. So when I say, you know, say that, you know, I don't think my book is a, is, is, you know, I regard meritocracy as very important and it's so important that it needs to be diluted in various ways, I think. Mm. Yeah, that helps. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think uh, that's going to, I suspect that will feed into your responses about our, some, some of our questions about meritocracy and capitalism. Um, yeah. But let's just get to that and let's see what you, how you sort of uh, yeah. answer that. Yeah. So, um, elite failure, as you've alluded to, is one of the yeah. big sort of uh, uh, criticisms of meritocracy that yeah. supposedly for the last 30, 40, 50 years, maybe, we've been sort of society has been pushing towards this meritocratic ideal. And yet we have things like the Wall Street crash, uh, the handling of COVID in different countries, Lehman Brothers and Iraq war, so on and so forth. Examples of elite failure. And one reason for why someone might think we have this is because uh, meritocracy paradoxically leads to uh, inequalities of opportunities for people who are, yes. who are just who are just about to enter the meritocratic sort of system, let's say. Yes. And some people have pointed out that capitalism seems to exacerbate these inequalities of opportunity by, for example, prioritizing competition or individual self-interest above all else. Uh, and, you, and we might wonder, is that the kind of society that we want, where people's lives are directed towards exam results and promotions and these sort of things that you might think are not sort of the higher goods of, of society, of well-being. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? What do you make of those criticisms? Um, well, I think there are two sorts of things that have gone on that I found depressing over uh, over the last few years. Um, one is this marriage between met- meritocracy and plutocracy, that you have um, you have got a number of people in society who have been given um, better and better opportunities as their parents have put more and more money to people, have put more and more emphasis on the value of education by sending their children to private schools, public schools, um, making sure that those private public schools put an enormous amount of emphasis on academic achievement, which used not to be the case in many public schools. Um, or moving to the right sort of postcode so that they can send their children to state schools um, that um, offer the best sort of state education. And that has happened, in my opinion, at the same time that um, lots of people from less privileged backgrounds have fewer and fewer opportunities to get ahead because they don't have access to the old grammar schools, to old systems of state education, which were deliberately designed to give more opportunities to working class people and which made the distinction uh, between promise, innate promise and, you know, your family background, your ability. So we've got meritocracy, which for complicated reasons is becoming more and more plutocratic. And I think that that gives meritocracy a bad name. It means that meritocracy is not doing the very thing that it claims to be doing, which is promoting people from wherever they're born in society. And it also means, paradoxically, that the plutocrats who get to the top 
think that they get to the top because they're so clever, not because they've had very privileged backgrounds. So it makes them more hubristic than, than ever. So I think that's one big problem that's going on. Now, the problem with capitalism, which goes along with this, is also very serious because what we've had is a widening, a lengthening of the pyramid or, or of the ladder, whatever you want to call it, so rising uh, inequality, um, a restriction of investment in education for the for the masses in inner city schools and the rest of it, and at the same time, an enormous reduction in the amount of money that the rich are paying in inheritance tax, the proportion of their income that they're paying in inheritance tax, particularly in the United States, where inheritance tax has basically disappeared. So you have a world, a, a shift from a world like the world in the 1960s, where these massive family fortunes um, are being broken up and taxed to a world in which they're very much intact. And we will soon have the birth of the first $1 trillion trust fund baby. Um, you know, somebody who at Perth has inherited uh, enough money to account for the size of giant corporations. So, you know, the, 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 the concentration of capital in the hands of certain families um, is exorbitant uh, at the moment. So two things, both in terms of just pure capitalism, distributing massive incomes to certain people and massive inheritance to certain people, which, which is not con- consummate with meritocracy. And at the other time, uh, the corruption of the meritocratic idea by people buying educational privilege. Both of those things happening at the same time is exceptionally worrying. Uh, and it's quite interesting to look back at the Gilded Age at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century um, and see the similarities, because two things happened then. One, we started constructing ladders of opportunity, creating academically very rigorous schools for the masses, both, you know, Schools in places like New York, San Francisco did that. Also schools in, in Great Britain did that deliberately to try and promote these hidden geniuses, hidden Einsteins from the bottom. But you also got the war on the trusts by Teddy Roosevelt saying that it's terrible to have these vast concentrations of wealth and these people inheriting millions, as it was then, uh, 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 of dollars on the basis of doing nothing because it's going to corrupt capitalism. He said that for capitalism to be a vigorous economic system, um, you know, people need to get to the top through their own fighting abilities. And if they, you just have an aristocratic class of capitalists inheriting vast amounts of money, then, ca- then America will go the way of pre-revolutionary France and become very, very, very decadent. And I think that we're at that stage in history. Not enough, not enough being done to find the hidden Einsteins, but also a huge amount of power and wealth going into the hands of um, yeah, a, a, a decadent ruling class ultimately. So, just as a follow up on that, um, so you don't think it's necessarily that capitalism is corrupting meritocracy, but perhaps some form of capitalism, like something like neoliberal capitalism, is the problem? Because no, I think I think oh. that pure free markets are the problem. I'm you know um, uh, Hayek is quite interesting because Hayek rejects the notion of meritocracy as being nonsense. And he says that, um, you know, the notion of dessert is meaningless. Um, just leave it to the markets. And if that means that some people get very rich and inherit vast amounts of money, it doesn't matter because there's no such thing as merit. There's no such thing as dessert. So Hayek is just as hard on the meritocratic idea as anybody on, on the left. I don't think that's the case for all sorts of reasons. Both we've talked about dessert. Also, I think about economic efficiency. Um, ultimate decadence, I think, is a, is a problem. So I think the um, 
the market constantly has to be corrected by the state, uh, both in terms of providing as much equality of opportunities as you can reasonably provide without you know, interfering too much in family life, and at the same time breaking up these vast inherited fortunes. Because I think a world of trillion-dollar trust fund babies is not sustainable, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, I, you know, I think, yes, intervention is absolutely vital here. But what one of the many things that worries me about the world is that the people who are doing the intervening, the people who are pro-state activism, tend to be anti-meritocrats and they're doing it for woke reasons or egalitarian reasons. They're doing it for the wrong reasons. So I believe mm. in an active state, but an active state that's meritocratic rather than driven by fantasies about equality, which I mean, of outcome, which I don't think are possible. Maybe another thing. So we've spoke about how capitalism might be corrupting meritocracy, but maybe meritocracy is, and maybe meritocracy is not even corrupting capitalism. But maybe the the kinds of life that this is leading to is something that we want to reconsider. So in your book, you talk right. about Singapore, for yeah. example, where yeah. educational success yeah. is almost a religion. It's revered to the point that you might think this sure. is something that we want. So this is what we've coined the quality of life objection. Uh, so I yeah. want to... What what do you think about how how should a meritocracy approach this? Because this this seems to obviously be a worry that people have. Sure. Now clearly, you can go too far with any good thing, um, and certainly you can go too far with meritocracy for various reasons. Um, one of which is you turn childhood into a series of examinations. Another is that you make everybody sort of live a life of anxiety rather than the life of reasonable contentment. And in doing those two things, you create psychic uncertainty, but you also devalue education because, you know, what sort of education is just about passing exams rather than learning things and also for the, for the pleasure of learning things. So I think that those are very real considerations. And if you go to Singapore, uh, which in many ways is an admiral society, um, but you don't get a sense of great joy in learning there, and you don't get a sense of great intellectual creativity. Uh, it's not Florence of the 15th century, you know, and it doesn't look like Florence of the 15th century. Those are all bad things. Now, you could argue in the case of Singapore that they're outweighed by the fact that it's a very poor country in 1950 that is now very prosperous, that they have a fantastic health service, that they, they, they don't have very much corruption, that they live very good lives. Uh, but you might think that they've gone too far and that without becoming decadent, they could be a bit gentler in those in those things. But um, in some ways, um, you have to be careful by being about being too gentle, uh, because if you're too gentle, then you might well um, and you don't have any objective tests and things like that then you might well miss a lot of talent and you might well become a much more hereditary meritocracy whereby the children of the middle classes naturally do much better than the children of the working classes. So some of that intervention that you see in Singapore, some of that obsession with examinations is about looking for talent where you might not, might not have found it. So uh, that's a good thing. And also, as I said, you know, if a society becomes too, rests on its laurels too much and becomes too decadent, that's also uh, a problem. Um, so, um, I'm ambivalent about this. Um, 
And also, I would say that on, in, on the bigger picture of things, if you have a meritocracy, i.e. A, a society which is very successful in looking for and finding talent and allocating that talent to the best place, to the place where it's best used, um, you also have a more prosperous society. And a more prosperous society is one that can find lots of different outlets for different types of talent and reward those different types of talent. So um, uh, we were talking about earlier about John Adams and John Adams said, I do politics so that my children can do um, painting and porcelain decorating and violin playing. But in other words, you know, you create a society that's successful so there's all sorts of different types of talents can be recognized and, you, uh, and used. So it's a very decadent talent. Uh, it's a very delicate balance. You have to make sure that you don't neglect hidden talent and finding hidden talent involves a process of sifting and examinations. You have to make sure that you don't become decadent because if you become decadent, you become poor. But also I would agree that you, we have to try our very best not to make society uh, intolerable and, you know, it's, pos it's quite possible possible to do that. So none, none of these problems can be, you know, there's no perfect system. Uh, and I think the, 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 the record of meritocracy in Singapore is incredibly impressive. I think Singapore had the same living standard as Sri Lanka in 1960. Uh, and it's become an incredibly dynamic place in which people on average, I think, are much happier than they are in, in Sri Lanka. Right. So <clears throat> following on that, I think, is there a possibility that meritocracy, because it seems a obsessed with performance and efficiency that is perhaps creating something like the wrong incentives or promote the wrong work ethos in the sense that it's always focusing on constant competition. All that matters in the end seems to be winning, at least psychologically for those who are living it and leading in the end to the idea that the end justify the means. Um, so is that a problem that you well, see, how, how should we deal with it? Yeah, ultimately, that's a very distorted version of what meritocracy is about, because meritocracy is not just about uh, relentless competition amongst identical individuals for rewards. Meritocracy is essentially about find, finding round pegs and putting them in round holes. So you need a system whereby you discover people's abilities and provide them with education that's suited to their abilities. And you have a system not of a relentless competition and elimination of people who don't win prizes, but of differentiation on the basis of ability. Um, so uh, the problem is everybody wants their children to be brilliant at mathematics or brilliant at um, technology. If everybody was willing to say, well, my child is not that brilliant at this, um, but would make a very good carpenter, and would accept that people have different talents and fit into the hierarchy of jobs. So if we had a higher status for apprenticeships, a higher status for vocational education, a higher status for manual work, then you wouldn't get this crazy competition for a few slots in the brain classes. And I think it's quite interesting that the sort of merit, the, the most, the most vigorous criticisms of meritocracy and the most um, counterproductive um, competition for slots in educational institutions take place in Britain and the United States, where there is an absolute fixation upon certain sorts of success, uh, academic success in particular. And you don't see anything like that amount of a problem, problem in Germany, where there's a higher status for manual work, for apprenticeships, for vocational education. So in order to reform meritocracy, we need to have a much broader notion of what success is in life. 
Um, and a lot of success is finding your proper role in society, the round peg in the round hole, rather than becoming a fellow of Trinity College Cambridge or whatever. Uh, and a, a, a lot of our problem is not to do with meritocracy, it's to do with the traditionally very low status of manual work or vocational work. I would also say that there's another thing which is driving this mania that we have in society at the moment, competitive mania, which is that we have, and we've endured for the last two decades at the very least, a period of very low economic growth. So when you have a period of very low economic growth at a time when there's not that many, not enough manual jobs, and there are, there are lots of jobs that require a university education, people are competing like mad to get all of these certificates and, and, and qualifications. Mm -hmm. We tend to ration jobs on the basis of these certificates and, and qualifications. So if you had these two solutions, one is higher growth, which is like easier to say, obviously, than to achieve. But if we did have higher growth, got out of this stagnation that we're in. And secondly, we... Uh, we allocated more of our people successfully into, into vocation. We improved the status of vocational training and education and say, you know, to be a plumber, my God, you know, to get a plumber is very, very hard. That being a plumber is a really quite a, quite a good career. Then we mm -hmm. wouldn't have that, have this fuss. And in fact, what we're doing is overproducing educated elites. We're sending these people to compete madly for all these certificates. And then a significant number of them don't end up with jobs anyway. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so what you just said is really the sort of the conclusion of your book where you sort of advocate for a better yeah. meritocracy and a wiser meritocracy. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you've already said a lot about that. And I think it's interesting the kinds of, because you're envisaging, I think, at least for us uh, in the UK and maybe in the US, I suppose, as well, quite profound shifts in how we think of success in life or what's a good life. Yes. And, um it certainly wouldn't be an easy thing to accomplish, certainly not an overnight uh, project. Yeah. Is there a, I mean, the Scandinavian countries are always touted as uh, paragons of what we should all be like. It, do you see any, you mentioned Germany, do you see a country in the world where they're doing this to a slightly more successful uh, degree? Or do you think it's something that we have yet to sort of really reach as a, as a, as a whole? No, I mean, I, I just repeat myself and say the Germanic countries, Germany and, and, and Switzerland and countries that are influenced, which to some extent the Scandinavian countries are, by that tradition. Um, and that tradition means, a, you know, a different sort of educational system from the one he ha we have with, you know, selective education systems. Some people going to grammar school, to, to, to academic schools, some not going to academic schools, a much closer fit between um, the vocational schools and jobs. Um, local companies, but also uh, a status revolution. Uh, I, I happen to have been in Germany just a couple of weeks ago, and it's quite extraordinary if you go to German manufacturing companies, you know, the status that a skilled machinist or a skilled person, who, a skilled engineer, a skilled shop floor worker has. These are people who are very proud of what they do um, and who do it with extraordinary devotion um, and who are very interested in what they do. I mean, I was talking to one of these guys you know, who was working on this machine, and then he said when he goes home at night, what he does is tinker with his car or else make three-dimensional you know, things with his 3D printer. You know, he just loved doing all of this stuff. And, um, you know, Britain has been trying to raise the status of technical and vocational education since, you know, and look to the German model for a very, very long time since, you know, since 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 Matthew Arnold and, 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 and you know, the, the middle of the 19th century. Um, and it's not worked. Why it should work now 
I don't know. I think there has been a, a big push to improve it. And there are a lot more technical colleges than there used to be. But it's a very deeply embedded prejudice in our culture. And what's happened in the United States is they used to have, which is a very Germanic country in lots of ways, they used to have, you know, very high status for, you know, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, or all the rest of these sort of institutions. And they've gone academia mad now. All of these academic things are becoming more and more theoretical and more and more divorced from or, or you know, status uh, systems. And also we had this long period of struggle with organized labor in Britain and also in the United States, uh, which may have been justified in some ways, but it also was a war against, you know, a status system. You know, these, these, these unions had an, an enormous uh, sense of the dignity of a certain sort of manual labor, which has been lost. So um, very, un, you know, which is very unfortunate given the fact that I think, A, we're overproducing um, knowledge workers and B, it may well be the case that a lot of knowledge work just gets destroyed in the next few years by AI. So, that, that, you know, it may, it may be more sensible not to be getting these university degrees, but training as a, a, as a plumber or something, you know, more technical. Mm, yeah, yeah. All right. So we have two, two more questions. <laughs> Uh, so we've been <clears throat> talking about uh, two or a little bit more, a few ways in which the idea of meritocracy seems to have been corrupted in yep. the past. Uh, perhaps you might disagree with, but this is uh, somewhat my, what we took from the book, is that you seem to show in the book how throughout history, meritocracy always end, uh, ends up or ended up failing, whatever the context, whatever other reasons. So, and at the same time, towards, like we've been talking at the end, the end of the book, you try to provide a reformation path for meritocracy to flourish. But given everything you show in, your, in the book about how meritocracy seems to constantly be failing throughout history, we are wondering how is it that this is any different from any other form of utopia? Ah, um, I like your question a lot. I would say that meritocracy is not a utopian ideal um, mm. because meritocracy takes into account the limitations and the peculiarities of human nature. It recognizes that there are individual differences in ability. It recognizes that, there, that those uh, differences in ability require a certain amount of education and training, but um, that they... That, that they define the human species. So I would say that socialism is a utopia, a utopian project, specifically because it doesn't understand what human nature is, that human beings are unequal, but they're also competitive and selfish in some ways. So I would say that meritocracy, like capitalism, is based on a non-utopian assessment of the way human beings are. Hmm. Um, I would say it constantly fails... Um, or it constantly sort of consumes and destroys itself, but it also constantly renews itself. I mean, it fails and destroys itself because it's captured by the beneficiaries, and those beneficiaries try to preserve their own position. But then people come up from underneath and try and reform it and restore equality of opportunity in, in the system. So, as you know, we saw in the end of the 19th century in in the United States, the this this fairly egalitarian society uh, and society which put an enormous premium on equality of opportunity and uh, common schools, common education and things like that. 
is um, unbalanced by the rise of these gigantic robber barons who own huge corporations. I think there was a time when when Carnegie uh, personally had a third of the money in, in the United States. I mean, it's extraordinary degrees of concentration of wealth. And then you get Teddy Roosevelt um, taking on these corporations and, 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 and Wilson to some extent. And you also get people building from the ground up ladders of opportunity right across the country, big political machines being taken taken on. Again, after the, 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 the Great Depression, the Second World War, another renewal. Uh, you've had a successive wave succession of, of renewals. Um, I think we need exactly the same thing at the moment. What worries me is that the big agency in the past of these renewals has uh, tended to be the left, um, because the left by nature is critical of the status quo. But at the moment, the left has gone down, gone off on some very weird tangent, which is all about uh, our collective identities as members of different races or different genders and um, equality of result. So I think that that's not a reasonable alternative, again, because it's utopian um, about... Um, so so the, the left has ceased to be meritocratic. And at the same time, the right... The populist right is very anti-meritocratic. It believes in the wisdom of the people rather than the wisdom of these awful elites, which it, 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 it castigates. And you've got people like you know, Markovitz Sandel, a lot of very clever people in, in the university world who, instead of saying what we need to be doing is getting rid of these legacies, getting rid of the privileges for, for, for all of these posh children, getting rid of scholarships for athletes who, who've spent their childhoods learning lacrosse, and we need to be, you know, making sure that we look look out for merit and nothing but merit. They're saying, oh, no, meritocracy is a terrible thing and agonizing about it. So, you know, at, a ve- at the very time when we should have another pro-meritocratic revolution, like the one ha- that happened in 1945, like the one that happened in around 1900, we're getting the right, the left and the center all pushing, in my view, terribly wrong ideas. You've uh, you've incidentally answered the second question we had, uh, so just just a very simple conclusion. Um, what are your your hopes for the future of meritocracy? Uh, give- well, my, my hope for the future of meritocracy is that people understand that the world at the moment is unsustainable with such huge concentrations of money in very few hands, such huge co- concentrations of opportunity in very few hands that the way to attack this, uh, solve this problem, is not to rail against um, pointy-headed elites like the right, is not to say that we've got to allocate opportunities on the basis of what, uh, uh, of what race you belong to or what your, your background are, but we've got to find more sophisticated and intelligent ways of discovering merit and that we'll begin to to create institutions from the ground up that should, that that will build ladders of of opportunity. I think we are beginning to do that. There are some very good uh, schools um, that look for academically talented people. There's some real attempts to sort of balance opportunity um, against uh, against unearned privilege. I think what's what's happening at Oxford, reaching out to people from more diverse backgrounds. Um, rather than relying on the same coterie of people who've been super educated, um, is 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 very very good. But if you weigh those attempts against you know the fact the degree of concentration of capital in 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 in, in, in such small hands, 
the size, the length of the, you know, the, 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 the social ladder and um, the, the sheer failure to, gr to grasp the fact that meritocracy provides this unique combination of, of justice and efficiency on the part of today's left, that all worries me enormously. Wonderful. And, uh, and, and what are you working on right now? Any future projects? <laughs> I, what I'm—is uh, this off the? Has this gone off the record now? Uh, are you, or are you still no, this, this, can be, this can be part of the the, the episode, the podcast. Well, okay, yeah. Sorry, what am I working on? Um, what, what I'm really interested in at the moment is is is, is how to fix liberalism, um, because you know at the very heart of the uh, what meritocracy is essentially is a liberal project. Um, it's you know the idea that you should judge people on the basis of their individual abilities and promote them as individuals. And we're, we've seen a big backlash against that. But I think we're seeing a similar backlash against a lot of other elements uh, within liberalism, which are really valuable and important. Uh, the notion that, um, that people should be given absolutely freedom of speech, um, the notion that you shouldn't impose orthodoxies on people from outside, the notion that we need as a species to be um, educated uh, in ways that uh, allow us to, to make better um, use of our talents, but also resist the corruption of a commercial society. If, um, so what I, I, I'm really interested in is to try and remind people of what an extraordinarily rich and interesting philosophy liberalism is. And also, you know, to add to my list about educating yourself, you know, danger of power, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely central to the idea of liberalism is the uh, separation of power and the dispersing of power. So liberalism in the 19th century has all sorts of insights, not just about meritocracy, but about power, about economic opportunity, about the nature of, of, of educational lower and higher cells, about the importance of freedom of speech and discussion. Now, liberalism traditionally has um, always responded to fresh challenges um, by renewing itself and by enriching itself. Um, it did so um, after, after, you know, after the, 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 the rise of the robber barons. It did so after the Great Depression. It did so after the Second World War. Um, it did so, um, you know, after the collectivism became intolerable. But now I think uh, liberalism is in a very weak state, partly because it's an idea that's been captured by the elites. It's become a, a top-down, self-satisfied belief, partly because it's fragmented into neoliberalism on the one hand, which is the religion of the technocratic classes, but also is very, very atomistic in its conception of, of, of people. And also left liberalism, which is the religion of the university classes, the university administrative classes, but is equally... Um, insufficient, and I, I'm very worried that it's actually very anti-individualistic in a way that it fetishizes certain collect collectivities. Um, so I need that. Uh, so I think that we need to be reminded of core liberalism of the 19th century, and that was much more than just free market belief. You know, people talk about classical liberalism as though what they mean by that is just a belief in the free markets. Classical liberalism, the liberalism of, of Mill at his best, or Tocqueville is not just about markets or, or social contracts or anything like that. It's a very rich set of beliefs about, about dispersing power and, 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 and realising our best selves. We need to revise that tradition 
um, at the moment, particularly because we have three massive attacks on what liberals ought to, ought to take seriously. One is communist China, um, which is crushing of individual, as crushing of the individual as anything has ever we've ever seen before, but also is enabled in doing that by technology which we've never had before. Um, secondly, these political permutations, which I've talked about before, the, the populists who share an enormous amount in common with with 1930s authoritarians, I think, you know, the, the, the virtue of the crowd or the masses and the evils of the, the elites and things like that. And also the woke left, which, again, I think is anti-individualistic. But most importantly, I would say that liberals need to revise their thinking about capitalism, because since 19, the end of the 1970s, the default position of center liberals or neoliberals has been that capitalism is good that business is the best way of organizing things, uh, that the presumption should be made that business is innocent, that you have to have a very low, a very high bar to have um, antitrust legislation or something. Robert Bork's work on trust, which says as long as the consumer is benefiting, we don't worry about the concentrations of power. And that basically government intervention is going to be so dangerous that you don't want to do that. I think that we need to um, be less forgiving that we need to revive a tradition within liberalism, which we saw in Keynes, we saw in the Ordo liberals, uh, which is much more critical of of capitalism and corporations, partly on the grounds of the concentration of power, but partly on the grounds of the way that these organisations are getting power to to organise our preferences. You know, if liberalism is an idea based on individuals making free choices, what happens if our preferences are being programmed by all of these companies, Um, you know, which, which... which watch us all the time and, and, and nudge our preferences in various complicated ways. And finally, because I think modern capitalism has basically found a way of sort of sticking its tentacles into our lower natures and supercharging those lower natures, you know, making us greedy or angry or the rest of it. I think the extent to which we're being reprogrammed by very, very powerful corporations that... Um, that, that, that's a pl- playing to our worst natures is, is very worrying. And again, that's why I think that the, the people like Mill, who really does grapple with the, with these sorts of questions, does talk about the higher self, the lower self. You know, it goes beyond Benthamism, which is a sort of neoliberalism mm-hmm. in some ways, to, to a richer conception of what we should be doing to resist the bad side of commercial society. So I think there's a very rich liberal tradition which has been obscured by neoliberalism and Hayek and the rest of it has been ignored by, by the left who don't like, uh, like the, the, these classical traditions anyway. Um, and I think we need to be, what's happening within capitalism, and you know, finally, the, 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 the fact that you have got these vast fortunes um, which are going to overtopple society. So we need to go back to the traditions of people like Teddy Roosevelt, who said that the state needs to intervene to break these things up for the sake of competition and for the sake of the vigour of society. Mm-hmm. Decadence. Mm-hmm. And of course, meritocracy will play a role there as well. It'll... Oh, absolutely. Meritocracy. I mean, I, I got into thinking about this because I looked at meritocracy as a sort of central liberal idea. But then I began to think that there are other sorts of central ideas which are also being subverted. So the commitment to freedom of speech and freedom of discussion is absolutely central, obviously, to, to, to Mill. And is a much more complicated idea than just saying that people should be allowed to argue with each other. It's a, a lot of what he talks about. Um, in on liberty is about how you have to institute you have to institutionally encourage diversity of opinion, which I don't think we do. Certainly not in the universities at the moment. All of these things need to be looked at 
are new because of these, as I said, the threats of populism, wokeism, plus unrestrained market forces, which are introducing the markets into, you know, our very natures. You know, if you look at Adam Smith, the theory of moral sentiments, and Adam Smith, um, the wealth of nations, you know, he, he makes, makes it quite clear there's a big distinction between the world of moral sentiments and the world of the wealth of nations. Now the world of the wealth of nations, as interpreted by Google and, 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 and Facebook and the rest of it, it goes straight into the world of moral sentiments, you know. Anyway, well, that's the end well, of the that sounds, that sounds fascinating, yeah. Well, uh, well, Adrian, thank you once again uh, for thank you. Thank you. discuss your ideas. Uh, thank you. Uh, Very enjoyable. Okay. Bye-bye. And welcome back, everyone. Uh, so that was our interview with Adrian uh, on the aristocracy of talent. And now Diogo and I are going to have a couple of minutes to just discuss some ideas that maybe we felt require further clarification or we just want to dig a bit deeper into some concepts that we didn't have time to go into in the interview. So Diogo, why don't you, I'm sure you have many thoughts, why don't you start us off with uh, something that you, you think is worth uh, digging deeper into? Yeah, uh, so, like you said, I th there are many thoughts, uh, many things that I think will be worth exploring, but perhaps the one that is most, most worth exploring is, I guess, the the fundamental one in terms, conceptually speaking, which is the definition of merit and the idea of meritocracy itself. So the thing with which we started uh, talking with uh, our conversation with Adrian. Yeah. So I think there are many things that perhaps we can discuss and let's see where the conversation takes us. But perhaps it should be it would be nice to just uh, recall that when we asked what the what's the definition of merit that he's been using, it refers to something like an equation that amounts to IQ or talent plus effort plus universal education minus bias. It's something like this, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just, yeah. So just as a side note, I'm not entirely sure what uh, bias and uh, universal education are doing in the definition there for the mere reason that avoiding bias seems to be the goal of merit or the, of meritocracy. So it doesn't really define it, I think. Uh, yeah, so I have doubts about that. Uh, and also universal education, I think, points towards a requirement uh, that perhaps we might want to ensure that we can have equality of opportunities or something like that. Uh, and so it's a, like a, pre a requirement for us to get to meritocracy or to be able to identify merit. Not entirely sure if what role it plays in defining the concepts themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. So they seem to be more like conditions to get it off the ground rather than part of the definition of what merit is. I have a sense that that might be the case. So I I, I mean, it's not sure it merits a lot of uh, discussion. It's just something to flag because I was a bit confused by that definition. Yeah. And in the book, he doesn't put it in these in these terms. So maybe this is something that he's sort of developed since publishing the book, something that he thinks needs adding to the uh, the formula but i 
maybe if we just focus on the IQ plus effort thing, which is, I think, the part of the equation that I think is what he writes about in the book. And I think it's the, it's the part that is of most interest for us, uh, the, the matter of greatest contention. Because, and this is what this is the question that we asked him in the interview, right? It's if merit is about what you deserve, and part of the equation of merit is IQ or your talent, so something innate, something that you don't really have any control in bringing about, then isn't that a problem? So, what do you think about that since the interview, since the discussion? Yeah, I, I think perhaps it might be worth just recalling how the that part of the interview went, kind of. So. We did press, I think, quite a bit on uh, what the role of talent is and why it should be part of the discussion. When it seems that, uh, at least that was the challenge, that talent is mostly the result of luck, uh, whereas uh, effort is not. So effort basically is morally earned, whereas talent is not. So that would be kind of the challenge. Um, And we pressed more than once on this idea that perhaps there is a moral distinction that is being created between those that have merit and that those that don't have merit based on something that is morally arbitrary and that basically we needed an argument for deservingness based on talents. Right. right? So this is the context in which our discussion un- took place. Can we unpack that a bit? So when we say, I'm not going to say the exact, I'm not going to put it in the exact way you said, but if we're saying that there's some kind of moral attribute to saying that someone has merit, we're saying that there's something good about having merit. And that goodness is something, it implies that you've brought it about, that there's some kind of activity. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's something that we should value and it's something that we have agency over, something like this. And so that's why it's deserving of our attention because we tend to think that things that are not under our control shouldn't be used against us. So the fact that people have one gender rather than another shouldn't be used against one of those genders, right? Right. So these are, the same goes for age, race, ethnicity, and so on. So these are attributes that normally we tend to think shouldn't take part in an argument uh, for why things should be this way rather than another, mm-hmm. uh, right? It's irrelevant. Yeah. So that's yeah. the idea. And talent would be one of those things because it seems a lot of people have argued, namely roles, but um, within this debate, this current debate where Agent's book comes, so Sandel makes that case as well, that whatever talents we have, are the result of luck, yeah. of the random nature of um, society and the world. And we just come to it with our characteristics within a specific context of family, social, economic, etc. And whatever we can, we do there and whatever we have, it's not up to us. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. That's a really good summary uh, way of putting it. Okay, and, and then, so one of the things that Adrian said in response to these challenges was that there are different kinds of desserts or different notions of desserts. And he sort of makes a distinction at that base level. And the kind of desserts that we've been talking about now, which is what you deserve because of what you've done, is, 
it is not actually the kind of dessert that he, it's only one of the desserts that he talks about. He talks about another kind and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says something along the lines of because you have a certain set of abilities, you have a claim on an education that allows those abilities to flourish. That is one kind of dessert that my talent lays a claim to be able to flourish. That's an odd idea to encounter that. And I'm not sure dessert is the right word there. I'm not sure that's the concept that is, um, is doing the work. I, I don't disagree that perhaps the argument can be made that there is some kind of social obligation to help you flourish, but I'm not sure that should be couched in terms of dessert. It might be, it could be couched in terms of what it is for you to be a citizen of a society that the society creates conditions in which you can actualize yourself, but that you deserve that. That seems a bit odd. What do you think about that? Yeah. So I, th yeah, I think that's one of the most, I think I can speak for both. It's the one of the most pu puzzling aspects of the entire argument or the book and our conversation with Adrian, that this has never been made very clear. So, so I, perhaps, so he uses a. I think this is the closest thing to an answer that we got is what you said, but also this idea that it's not entirely the case that we don't deserve our talents. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, that one has to work to develop one's talents. Right. I think this is the closest thing we got to um, to an answer to the challenge. So basically, Adrian agrees that effort um, is morally important and that talent. It's a matter of luck, but only to a certain extent, because again, we can deserve our talents because uh, we have to work to develop our talents. Because as he said, it's rare that anyone is that gifted or talented that they don't need to have to work on it, on those talents and make something out of it, that they just can be lazy about it and still reap the rewards of that talent. I think you mentioned Mozart, I think, in our conversation, yep. right? Yeah, yeah, in the book too, I think. Right. Um, yeah, so I think there are perhaps two issues that that I immediately start to consider. One is I'm not entirely sure with this formulation. Let me just repeat it because this is how we put it. Like it's not entirely the case that what we des uh, sorry, it's not entirely the case that we don't deserve our talents. One has to work to develop our talents. I just want to emphasize the word work there. So. Yeah. My first worry is it's unclear if this mentioning of working, which seems to point to effort, it's not already in the definition of merit, which is IQ or talent plus effort. And so it's already accounted for uh, as being morally relevant. And so the moral relevancy of talent exists because of the moral relevancy of effort, which doesn't say much about talent itself. It seems it seems perhaps circular. Uh, there's something strange here, I think, because it, we already accounted for the idea of effort. I think you're right to put your finger on that, because, yeah, as you say, it's the work in the merits equation that is the same work that is m making your talent flourish. It's almost as so one way I try to think about this is if oh, whether talent because I think, I think Adrian is sort of trying to hold together 
the idea of individuals as fundamentally different and the idea that everyone should be able to achieve something. So the effort thing and, and the talent thing, he's got sort of those commitments that he wants to hold on to at the same time. And I wonder whether talent is, it's an essential background condition. We can't, let's assume that there is this thing called talent and let's assume that people are just born with innate, different innate abilities. It seems like you don't need to account for it if your concern is effort. But it looks as if Adrian wants to account for it because he wants to account for what he takes to be a substantive point when it comes to talking about individuals in society, which is that they have these qualitative differences, uh, inherent qualitative differences, and that these are somehow significant to who we are as part of our yeah, it's part of our identity is that I'm good at sports or I'm good at numbers or whatever. But exactly what you said just now, I think makes or suggests at least that the merits equation could do without it. Like it's not doing any real work in the merits equation. You might accept it's a necessary background condition, like universal education, let's say, or no bias, but maybe it's not doing any work in the effort, in the merit equation. Yeah. I mean, I think that exactly. I think that's the most puzzling part. Which what what is talent doing there? Given that this is the moral argument for it, like you said, Adrian wants to account for the fact that we naturally are not equal. But the fact that we are naturally not equal, it doesn't mean that when we are trying to decide how we should organize society, that these factors matter. Again, goes back to the beginning of our conversation about why we take some factors as being morally relevant and others to be morally irrelevant. And so it's unclear what talent is doing there. I, yeah, absolutely. Something that I just thought of. So let's say we stop taking account of talent in our meritocratic calculus. Does this then create a problem when we're... Let's say you've got two people, right? And we don't know which one is more talented than... We don't know if one is talented or the other one is not, let's say. Because we're not thinking about that. Because we've, let's, mm -hmm. let's say we've agreed that it's impossible for us to know beforehand whether they have talent. All we can see is that, I don't know, one of them, to use a very crude calculus, one of them worked 10 hours and finished job A, and one of them worked six hours and finished job A. You might assume that the one that took less time had more talent. Or you might think uh, they worked better at it and so were able to finish sooner. But you might also think that the one that took longer to do it put more effort in doing it because they tried harder. So maybe it was harder for them to accomplish the task, but they tried harder to do it. And it looks as if when we're thinking about this question, it's not... Talent almost seems to creep into the back of our minds. Mm. We start questioning uh, the value of effort. We start questioning... Did they just do it because they're better at that sort of game? Well, I, I <clears throat> because I think in that case, we might be associating being the best at doing something with efficiency. And that does not necessarily tell us, tells us anything about how to organize society and how to uh, give jobs or select people for... X, Y, and Z. 
right? So perhaps that might be a very good way. I have no idea, but it might be a very good way of choosing a worker. Well, you have a company, you're hiring people. Perhaps it's one way for you to identify who you should keep and you, who you shouldn't or something like this. But that doesn't mean that the rest of society needs to be organized around this first idea of efficiency. And second, it also doesn't mean anything about the idea of merit for the rest of society. I'm not even entirely clear that in this case, the person who did the most faster or more most efficiently has more merit. I'm not entirely sure where the merit word comes in. Because when we talk about merit, it means if it's who has the most merit in being the most efficient, sure. But merit doesn't come in abstract. It always applies to specific context, I think. So in this case, if that's how you see it, fine. But it's not as if that person is just the most merited, period. I had a second worry about... Uh, so let's say that everything we just talked about that doesn't apply. For some reason, we are completely uh, going on the wrong direction here, thinking that talent is already within the argument or that talent becomes morally relevant because of effort which we already accounted for, let's say that none of this is an issue, right? I think that those that object that talent is morally arbitrary will immediately reply to agents' uh, proposal saying that one's capacity to develop one's talents are, to a very large extent, the result of luck, especially uh, when we look at this from a um, very early age. So, again, it's a matter of luck because of one social economic conditions that one can control when one is born and one is developing as a human being. Uh, yeah, so which parents, schools they one attends, especially early educational op opportunities. Not everybody has access to the same kind of schools it's because they live, I don't know, in one part of the world rather than another, even in one part of a country rather than another. And so... I, th I think there's something here that many people have pointed out in, that empirically we, we know this, that one of the best predictors of students' grades is parents' incomes. And this is because of the investment that parents do in their ch ch children's education. So I think that this would be an immediate pushback on this idea that talent is not totally deserved because if the reason for that is that we work on it, well, can just say oh, a lot of the work we can do it's not our own in that we don't control it it's the result of luck once again so yeah i think we are still given these two worries and perhaps others that we're not going to manage to address it's just that we are i think we're just left wondering what is the argument for why we deserve our talents and um why should ta the idea of talent be, or IQ even, uh, if, like he puts it, should be part of the discussion, since it seems to be largely determined, again, by something that it's outside of, our, of one's control. Again, especially when, I just want to emphasize this, especially when we consider that in this meritocratic system, there is such a premium put on education, and by education I really mean just exams of all kinds, and they start from a very, very early age. And basically, it, 
seems to imply that it's just going to determine your entire life. And from which age can we say that we are actually taking control over our talents? I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that Adrian does try to sort of deal with these worries in the final chapter of his book, what he calls a wiser meritocracy. But of course, the it's you know, it's uh, what what he's suggesting is a a, a revamp of the of entire society and uh, whether or not it would work and what the yeah. fine details of it are remain open to a question. And another thing I think is worth mentioning is, like you pointed out in the in the, our conversation, is that this is not a book on philosophy. It's not a book uh, making a moral argument. This is a history book on the history of the idea of merit and how we can see through history how it, it's a revolutionary idea on his words. And... We should take that into account that I think that's a very important point. Really good. We had two more points to discuss, but we've ended up talking quite a bit on this. Um, it is the most, I think, fundamental issue, even for both of us and our reading of the book and discussion. I don't often express my opinions on this podcast, but I, I entered this um, this book thinking that it was very much pro-meritocracy, and I've left being much more on the fence, or rather thinking that maybe, as you said earlier, it belongs to certain spheres of society, uh, but maybe not for the whole of society. I think something that I think Sandel has said, I think you know, the, in, the, in the debate with Adrian specifically. Is it the intelligent square debate? Exactly, yeah. He makes this uh, distinction between, I'm not sure I'm putting this in the correct way or exactly as he puts it but the idea I, I, I have is that there, there might be a distinction between institutionalized uh, merit and just common sense merit or just merit right and the fact that we can identify merit in society it just doesn't mean that we everything in society should be mainly organized according to that idea I, I think that perhaps that's the most radical of the meritocratic uh, proposal. Oh, it's, it's basically proposing a society that is organized based on this idea. And there might be other values that should trump it, and this should not be the guiding principle. And still, we can identify merit ourselves without having to have this institutionalized, as it seems to be proposed by Adrian and by others, but in this case, uh, by Adrian. All right. I think maybe we should uh, call it there. We also want to talk about a tension that we saw between democracy and meritocracy, but we're not going to go into that because uh, <laughs> that's going to take another half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Minimum. Okay, so, well, uh, Diogo, thank you once again. I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. This was great. Fantastic. Yeah, okay. Thank you for having me again. My pleasure as well. And uh, thank you to everyone who's listened or watched, rather, in this case. Keep a lookout for future episodes that will be coming out uh, for this season. And bye-bye.